Our reading this morning comes to us from the uh, Indian Bengali poet, um, but also playwright, composer, social reformer, educator, uh, Rabindranath Tagore, uh, who lived his entire life under British rule in uh, the Indian subcontinent, and also um, spent most of his life, yes, composing beautiful works, writing beautiful works, but also being a part of the move for social reform and change within the Indian subcontinent. Uh, he's famous for um, educating, uh, promoting education in India versus just open revolution. He felt that the way to beat empire was through education and worked closely with Gandhi uh, with his nonviolent resistance movement uh, and also famously turned down knighthood when the British Empire offered it to him for his poetry. And that was scandalous to the British Empire and yet a very important symbol. This poem this morning is titled Playthings, again by Rabindranath Tagore. And he writes, Child, how happy you are sitting in the dust, playing with a broken twig all morning. I smile at your play with that little bit of broken twig. I am busy with my accounts, adding up figures by the hour. Perhaps you glance at me and think, what a stupid game to spoil your morning with. Child, I have forgotten the art of being absorbed in sticks and mud pies. I seek out costly playthings and gather lumps of gold and silver. With whatever you find, you create your glad games. I spend both my time and my strength over things I can never obtain. In my frail canoe, I struggled across the sea of desire and forget that I too am playing a game. A wonderful poem. <laughs> Certainly will anchor us this morning as we uh, consider a few things here. Let me go ahead and get myself ready. And so there's a memory this morning that I want to lift up. I'm not quite sure how old I was, uh, but I was young. Perhaps I was five or six. I know it was either preschool or kindergarten age, and it was during summer camp. And for the most part, I loved summer camp. I always resisted it, but I always loved it. For the most part, um, it was great. There was the weird craft projects, paper mache and all that stuff. Uh, clay, the familiar games, time outside. Uh, there's a nostalgia to that multicolored umbrella looking thing that you would spread out across a massive gym and a bunch of five and six year olds would just fluff it up and down and down and people would hide underneath it and play some weird game of tag. I even enjoyed, even though it's mostly known by people, I don't really want like swimming or the water. I enjoyed the trips to the nearby public pool. It felt like an adventure. I can still taste and smell the Kool-Aid from the giant drink dispensers mixed up by the camp counselors, who I thought were much, much older than me at the time, but looking back, they were probably high school age, but they felt like adults. There was the crafts and painting and story time and the guests and whatnot, and it all happened in a place that was called the Iowa Community Center, where I was growing up, creatively named because it was on Iowa Street. I'd often get there early, not the early, early bird crew, but early enough. And there's something indescribable uh, about being in a school when it's nearly empty. 
It's a strange feeling that I quite, can't quite describe, but I still remember it very clearly. Summer camp was fun enough. However, I remember one moment with dread. <laughs> and it was often a dread that was accompanied by sports. I was always a relatively tall child, so people assumed I'd play football or basketball, but I never had any interest and no one ever really bothered to teach me the rules. Though I've always enjoyed being a spectator, right? How could you not when you grow up in Chicago? There's one memory from that summer camp related to sports that sticks. And um, it was the first time I ever played stick hockey or floor hockey. I don't quite know how common floor hockey is outside of parts of the country where hockey uh, is a big deal, but in Chicago, it was a big deal. Everybody had to learn it. The teacher made sure we got our hockey sticks and I think we used some type of ball instead of a puck and the teams were chosen, I was ready. And the game started, there was a thrill. And looking back, I'm sure that gymnasium sounded like a cacophony of cats with a gym full of five and six-year-olds yelling and running, running. And I found myself near our team's net. And suddenly, the puck made its way to me. I suddenly successfully stopped the puck and I moved away from the oncoming crowd. It was like the perfect play in hockey. I turned around and landed the puck in our team's net. The teacher counted it as a point for the opposing team. The backlash was swift, and I didn't quite understand what I did wrong at the time. My team just yelled at me. The opposing team cheered for me. The teacher never bothered to explain what had happened. I don't quite know how I found out. Perhaps it was years later or later that day. Who knows? Memory is a weird thing, but I remember when someone explained the rules of hockey to me, I had to wonder, how come no one ever explained them to me in the first place? I was playing a game and I never knew the rules. Needless to say, team sports were never quite my thing. I preferred solo sports, like running. I'll even go as far as hiking, though most people don't consider that a sport. But tell me that when you're climbing the mountain and you see people give up right on the first climb. But yes, that memory always stuck with me playing floor hockey, not knowing how to play the game. I remember the anger. I remember the not knowing, the bewilderment. I remember the embarrassment. Did I miss out in not learning to enjoy team sports or playing them in earnest? Looking back, no, I didn't. But I do wish I had gotten over that memory and learned the rules. Ultimately, kindergarten stick hockey or floor hockey is inconsequential to my life or to most people's lives, unless it motivated you to go pro, right? But outside of sports itself, I'm interested in this idea of playing a game, but not knowing the rules. We've all done it, right? It could be a board game, sport, or something else entirely. You know how it feels, right? Especially if no one tells you the rules or tells them to you very poorly. It's a feeling of not wanting to look like a fool while at the same time being completely frustrated. Why won't anyone tell me the rules? You'll be sitting there thinking, why am I even here and what's going on? Today is about learning the rules of the game. What game? The game of life, right? Not the board game, but life itself. The religious studies professor James P. Kars wrote a book called Finite and Infinite Games, A Vision of Life as Play and Possibility. It's laid out like some philosophy books I've read before, like Nietzsche, who would number his thoughts and build upon them. And the book begins very simply like this. Kars writes, there are at least two kinds of games, 
One could be called finite, the other infinite. A finite game is played for the purpose of winning. An infinite game is for the purpose of continuing the play. Already there's a lot to unpack there. I don't think we could possibly go through uh, all of the points that Karst has in this book and do them justice. So I'll just give you a quick overview and some of my thoughts. And ultimately, why bother to think this way here at UUCL, right? You don't need to look far to find what Karst calls finite games. And I should quickly back up real quick. This sermon today, the topic was selected by David Miller, who won our circus auction, right? And he picked this book and this game. And so thank you, David. Uh, this was a fascinating read. And here we go, right? And so the quick broad overview is it begins with what's called finite games, games that can be won, right? Where there are very clear rules and boundaries, kindergartners playing floor hockey, a candidate winning an election, a church voting one way or the other, getting a promotion, quitting a job, simply surviving within a constrained environment. And for Kars, everything falls into a game that we play. That language can sound a little jarring, right? Life is a game. I trust that we can expand our idea of what that word means beyond just ha-ha, fun times, right? With that, life could be defined as a game. We wake up one day in a world not of our making, and we get thrust in the systems and structures and societies and institutions and so on with rules and goals. And it feels like no matter where in the world, capitalist or not, democratic or not, there are always clear winners and losers. In that sense, the word holds. And maybe it's a part of our species. Primates like to compete. They like to win. Wherever we look, there are games to be won. And I don't need to tell you, but we all know the sting of losing, of not achieving a goal and so on. But infinite games, and to keep using Kars' language here, aren't about winning. They're about keeping the game going, about keeping life going, about health and vitality, about enacting visions and hopes we may not live to see. That sounds familiar, right? And there is no need to win, only to play, only to look at possibility in every moment. Now with those two things outlined, right? I know what kind of game I would wanna play in life, but that isn't the point. The point isn't one or the other, but rather to be mindful of both. Try as we may, we cannot avoid paying the bills. We cannot avoid taking care of our basic needs. And there are so many things in life where we need to, to complete them, to succeed, to get through the day. And we also can't avoid thinking about what's possible. Our minds can extend to infinity quite easily. We also can't not, cannot live in only one or the other, right? What kind of life it is it to always be trying to conquer, to win, to defeat every aspect of life? And what kind of life is it to only look at infinite, endless possibility? For me, one version of life becomes a constant struggle, and the other becomes an ambivalent mess. But if we look at that, how James Kars in this book is describing life with this language, you realize it's not an either or. That's what this becomes about. You, it's a both and. Both and with a preference toward rooting ourselves in possibility, a bastion of possibility. Our goal in life, according to Kars, is to play the infinite game in his language. Yes, we still play those uh, games where there's winners and losers, successes and failures. There's good and bad 
but we can engage them in a way that does not define who we are. And that last bit is crucial. And I think where this text started to click with me as a Unitarian Universalist minister. How are we defining ourselves in life? How are we letting ourselves be defined by other people or things? And how do we liberate our relationship with life so that it's less about containing everything and more about expanding who we are and how we live? Is it even possible to break that spell uh, in life where there must always be a winner and a loser? Are we more than our affectations? The questions could be endless. The first big segment touched upon this in this book um, had to do with affectations, right? I just mentioned that right there. The titles and labels and everything in between. Mr., Mrs., Mux, Reverend, Doctor, Professor, Mother, Father, Daughter, Son, Airline Pilot, Pagan, Christian, Atheist. We could keep going all day, couldn't we? The question to ask ourselves with titles, our labels, is how much do they control our narrative? Reverend, doctor, professor. Do we see them as trophies, as idols, perhaps, as things that are hard won? None of that is inherently bad. But do they fully define who we are? Or do we define them? If you see hints of Zen Buddhism in here, I suspect James Kars would agree. One of the exercises in Zen Buddhism for new students is to keep asking the question, who are you? Over and over and over. And every time you answer, the teacher responds, excellent. Now set that aside. Who are you? Over and over and over and over. I'm Brian. Great. Set that aside. Who are you? I'm a minister. Wonderful. Set that aside. Who are you? I'm a husband, a son. Great, set all that aside. Who are you? Set it all aside. Geek, nerd, runner, LGBTQ American, liberal, Unitarian Universalist. Set it aside. Who am I? While the dialogue in Kars' book about finite and infinite games isn't exactly like Zen, it does nudge us toward looking at the things we ascribe as being ourselves and shifting our relationship with them. That's what it's all about. Instead of my being a minister influencing who I am, I influence what it means to be a minister. Do you see the distinction? I'm not defined by my title, but instead I help define what it is. And there's a freedom in one of that, in that, that opens up possibility. And so the question is, what are the labels in your life? Do they open up possibility for you? Or do you need to change your relationship to those labels? James Carceles suggests one solution for reorienting ourselves to life. He uses the image of nature. Nature is, of course, indefinable when we really think about it. It has no comment on our lives. It just is. But we human beings, we're, we're an interesting species, right? We try to control the natural world. We try to define it, to make it more predictable. We almost make it machine-like. But when I imagine machinery, I think of factories and assembly lines, means of production, measurement, and control. And you can see that in so many ways uh, that we relate to the world, the need to control everything outside of ourselves. But what if we shifted that image away from control away from make, making our lives, making nature, making whatever it is we're engaging more 
mechanical? What if we shifted that image to a garden? Now, I'm sure there's plenty of controlling gardeners, right? But as someone who simply marvels at gardeners, I see an element of astonishment in that image. The image of a garden presents us with an interesting balance. Nature will take its own course despite our hopes. Imagine if I asked all the gardeners in our group, you plotted out everything and you thought it would go this way and it went this way, right? (laughs) But we still get to participate in creative ways. We get to be a part of the nurturing of life, the planting, the watching, the waiting, the surprise, the relationship that forms between garden and gardener, the harvesting, the dormancy. And then we start all over again. The image of machinery leads to a product, a quota, gears of commerce. But a garden is more intimate. It keeps the play going in life. And that is what our vision of life should be like, according to Kars. Don't go for the factories and assembly lines, but go for the garden. And that is what our hope and vision should be for this world, too. And that's where justice comes in, right? And and communities like ours come into this conversation. If there's one critique I have for this book and this philosophy and this topic and this way of viewing the world, it's that I think it missed a lot of opportunities with regard to social action, but it's also a very concise philosophy. The nuts and bolts are right there. We will never escape the checkboxes, the lists, the work, the et cetera. We, We know this, but we can learn to reorient ourselves to them. We can see them as part and parcel of something grander, more astonishing and liberating than the boxes we're told to fit into. And for a community like ours, in many ways, our theology offers a vision of infinite play, of keeping possibility and playfulness at the forefront. It's not about a one and done salvation with us, right? It's not about making one myth the story, the only story we tell. It's about being a garden of possibility versus a vending machine of shallow spirituality. And the work of justice is about ensuring all people have the liberating experience of possibility. It's about confronting what the philosopher Rousseau once said, humanity is born free, but everywhere is in chains. It's as we heard in the succinct and beautiful poem for Rabindranath Tagore, which I'll offer up again for you. Child, how happy you are sitting in the dust, playing with a broken twig all morning. I smile at your play with that little bit of broken twig. I am busy with accounts, adding up figures by the hour. Perhaps you glance at me and think, what a stupid game to spoil your morning with. Child, I have forgotten the art of being absorbed in sticks and mud pies. I seek out costly playthings and gather lumps of gold and silver. With whatever you find, you create your glad games. I spend both my time and my strength over things I can never obtain. In my frail canoe, I struggled across the sea of desire. Forget that I, too, am playing a game. Question for all of us, whether it is our daily lives, whether it's the titles that we think we are, or we're gathering, the titles that we're very proud of, and you can be proud of them too. I'm proud of the work I've done in my life. I'm proud of the things that I've accomplished. I'm proud of all the work that Unitarian Universalist communities do. I am committed to the work of justice here in this community, but how am I orienting myself to that? 
Is it just another box that's constraining me, that's shoving me in a corner? Or is it something that's opening up infinite possibility in me, in you, in this community? And so it begs the question, what kind of game are you playing in this one life of yours? Does it bring liberation and possibility to you, to the world, to here? Those are the questions we hold, and may it be so. Amen.